Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 24th, 2014. Man, we got a lot of ground to cover today. It's one of those times I'm looking at what we're supposed to talk about in my program notes here and going... <laughs> Hang on. We're going to get right to it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles to test. Basically, you can think of it popular teachings or popularized teaching by popular pastors, preachers, conference speakers, and and Bible teachers and authors and folks like that to see if what they're saying about God actually squares with what God's Word says the way it's supposed to be understood, and yeah, using sound biblical hermeneutics. You can, the more I do this program, the more it's becoming more like a program that has to do with comparative religion, which is actually kind of disconcerting to me, but that's probably a topic for another episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, as I was saying during the, uh, the, the program's opening, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So let me talk about what we're going to talk about, and then we'll get right to it. We're going to begin with um, a Jennifer LeClaire video. She has a brand new video out there talking about the things that keep her up at night. Now, one of the things that I've noticed in the uh, general charismatic movement is this elaborate teaching on the so-called Jezebel spirit. But if you open up your Bible and actually pay attention to what the Bible says about Jezebel, um, what you're going to find is is that this popularized teaching regarding Jezebel isn't anywhere taught in Scripture. In fact, you can almost think of it as kind of like a, um, you know, a, a charismatic old wives' tale that's taken on a life of its own. So we're going to take a look at that. We have a Brian Houston update. Brian Houston has tried to make some clarifying statements, and I have to put that in air quotes, clarifying statements regarding uh, whether or not Muslims and Christians serve the same God. Unfortunately, his statements, his clarifying statements have added more confusion to his statement. And uh, thanks to the intrepid work of the folks out there at the Hillsong uh, Church Watch uh, website, um, the, the timeline of Brian Houston's behavior, um, well... <laughs> 
Yeah, let's just say that his timeline only muddies the water regarding his statement and and his clarification of the statement. So we'll take a look at that. We have some Mark Driscoll uh, news. Um, apparently, 20 former Mars Hill pastors are seeking mediation with Mark Driscoll. Yeah, you heard that number right, 20. That church hasn't been around that long, maybe a little over a decade. And, you know, there's already 20 former pastors, 20, 20. I mean, that's a huge number. We'll take a look at that. <clears throat> and then... Uh, to round out hour number one, um, I've got proof that uh, Beth Moore is not a solid exegete. Beth Moore is one of these people who, you know, who you know, flies around the country showing up at like top venue um, conferences and things like that. And she's touted as this like amazing Bible teacher and stuff like that. Uh, but the sec- we're going to be listening to a segment of a teaching she recently did on the, the story of Naaman the leper which shows that she's not a solid exegete at all. In fact, it, it, her teaching almost borders on narcissistic eisegesis or a complete uh, inability to uh, actually pay attention to what a text is saying, what it's about. Yeah, it's it's kind of that bad. So uh, we'll be uh, taking a look at that. And then in hour number two, we're going to head down to Potential Church again. We're going to listen to a Troy Grambling sermon uh, from his uh, Daredevil sermon series, um, where sound biblical exegesis clearly is not on the docket, uh, but just some really weird stuff that, you know, again, if you would just open up the Bible and read it in context and pay attention to what it's saying, you know, think back to when you were in grade school and you had to take those Scantron tests, you know, uh, reading comprehension. Yeah, those, those, what the skills they taught you in elementary school regarding reading comprehension actually do you well when it comes to sound biblical exegesis. They get you really far if you just apply it. So that's what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We've got to get right to it because we have a lot of ground that we've got to cover. And since we're starting off with kind of a general charismatic Patricia King-ish gang uh, update, well, that requires me to do this. So have you heard the popular uh, charismatic teachers out there warning about the Jezebel spirit? Well, apparently this is one of those things that keeps Jennifer LeClaire of Charisma Magazine up at night. And it, it need not be. This is, well, it's not only a myth, it's not even a biblical doctrine. I mean, it's like an old wives' tale or some weird thing that's taken on a life of its own. But here's Jennifer to LeClaire from her latest YouTube video entitled Spiritual Warfare When Jezebel's Witchcraft Keeps You Up at Night. That's the name of it. Uh, here's Jennifer LeClaire to explain. Here we go. Hi, it's Jennifer LeClaire. You probably know me from books like The Making of a Prophet or The Spiritual Warrior's Guide to Defeating Jezebel. I want to talk to you. With a name like that, The Spiritual Warfare's Guide to Defeating Jezebel. Um, listen, um, open up your Bible and read the story uh, stories of Jezebel. Jezebel makes her her, her appearance in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, and her demise... Uh, is not all that far later. I mean, you know, it, 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 so you, you you read about the story of, of the death of Jezebel in Second Kings chapter nine, and um, and then the only other time the word Jezebel appears in the Bible is in Revelation chapter two verse twenty. Jezebel was clearly a historical person. She was extremely evil, 
And uh, her Hebrew name, Jezebaal, and she was, you know, tells you who she worshipped, Baal. Uh, she's like the princess of Baal. I think that's what Jezebaal means. And her, I think her father was a high priest in the Baal cult, which was a human sacrificial, terrible, false idolatrous. And she was, I mean, uh, out of all the wicked, evil witches in uh, <laughs> in uh, the uh, Old Testament, I mean, she's up there kind of like at the top. I mean, she's like the Maleficent of uh, of the Old Testament. No doubt about it. But she's dead. She's gone and nowhere in scripture aside from second first and second kings and uh, the book of revelation is she ever mentioned. So there's no there's no warning in scripture about some ongoing uh need to be worried about Jezebel spirits and things like that. This is a you know sorry, it's an old wives tale. This is some weird teaching that's gotten some legs in in the charismatic movement, and it need not be because the Bible nowhere warns us about Jezebel spirits and that we need to do warfare with them. But let's see what Jennifer LeClaire has to say about this. Today about spiritual warfare. I mean, intense spiritual warfare. How many of you listening to me, and you can shoot me an email later and let me know at Jennifer at JenniferLeClaire.org. How many of you have been facing intense spiritual warfare? warfare lately i mean exhaustion fatigue you just feel like you want to give up and maybe you need to go see a doctor infirmities coming against your body imagination is just onslaught just an onslaught of maybe you want to go see a psychologist negative thoughts and and feelings and it's just like a barrage you know i noticed that this time every year this time when lent starts it just seems like all hell breaks loose against me. And uh-huh. Man, you know, I hate doing this critique because you know how she's going to view this. She's going to view this as some, one of those Lenten, you know, spiritual warfare attacks against her. But Jennifer, listen to me. You, you know, you're, you're looking for demons under every rock and Jezebel spirits where they don't exist. I mean, you know, this could be a dietary thing. Um, it, maybe if you get out and exercise and, you know, maybe get on a treadmill four or five hours, you know, four or five miles a day or something like that and watch what you eat and, you know, have a little bit more protein, maybe this would go away. This is not a coincidence. This is a demonic cycle. This is a, this is a running theme, as I like to sometimes say, with regard to spiritual warfare. You know, sometimes you see, you see things and they pop up here, here, and here, you know, with this relationship, with that project, with this thing over here. And, and it's like this running theme. And that's the enemy popping his head up like one of those whack-a-moles, you know. And yeah, How do you know that? How do you know it's just not sinful human nature doing what sinful human nature does? Why do we have to go to the demonic? Every different direction. But we have authority over the enemy. We don't have to be afraid or worry, but we do need to be wise. We need to be wise and we need to be equipped for spiritual warfare. So this week I wrote an article called When Jezebel's Witchcraft Keeps You Up at Night. <laughs> yeah. I've been going through it. I'm going to share some of that with you because every year, like I said, every Yeah, and, and again, this is sad. This is actually really sad. The reason it's sad is because, I mean, clearly she's having issues at night. You know, she's she's scared of something and, you know, she feels like she's being oppressed and attacked and things like that. But, yeah, nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that there's some roaming Jezebel spirit that's out to get us. I mean, this 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 sounds like some kind of spiritual paranoia, not actual real biblical spiritual warfare here at this time this onslaught of witchcraft comes against me and i'm not talking about wiccans i'm not talking about you know witches i'm talking about spiritual witchcraft a spiritual force 
that comes against us. It, it's a demonic force. It's 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 among the the demonic hierarch that uh, hierarchy that that Paul mentions when he's talking about it in Ephesians six. Uh, you know, principalities and powers and and, and spiritual uh, forces and, and spiritual wickedness and dark places. It, it, it's part of this whole hierarchy. You know, where exactly it falls can be debated, but it, it's one. Yeah, how do you even know it has anything to do with the hierarchy? I mean, it could be a sleep disorder. I mean, let's not jump to the demonic immediately. I mean, let's kind of rule out other things. I mean, you know, it, it could just be that your body's winding down. Maybe you're having, you know... A, Problems with insomnia. Uh, some of this could be cleared up with good diet and exercise. You know what I'm saying? The enemies, I believe, and you know, we, we read about witchcraft in the Bible, Jezebel's witchcraft in, in Kings. We read about that. So I want to talk to you about that. You know, this year the enemy used a different tactic against me, something I wasn't quite expecting, and something I wasn't, I didn't prepare myself for it, quite frankly. And and so, you know, I've corrected that. Now that I've corrected it, I'm going to share it with you. But, you know, since since these spiritual forces of darkness, these wicked forces, these these demonic attacks, since it's, they couldn't slow me down during the day, because back in the early days when I was battling witchcraft, it would it would get me during the day and I'd just fall asleep. I mean, I would just sleep and sleep and sleep. And it was just like this haze that came on me, this witchcraft. I didn't know what it was. So, you know, I couldn't fight it or I'd fight it, but I didn't have the, the, the revelation I needed to overcome it at the time so you know it really can't get me like that in the daytime anymore i mean seriously this is like spirit quest you know i've, I've got these things i gotta go figure out what what i've got to do and how to apply myself in a spiritual warfare kind of way in order to come against first of all i figure out what spirit's coming against me is it the jezebel spirit maybe it's the yeah, maybe it's a completely spirit all you know maybe it's balaam oh no what if it's balaam you know uh, <laughs> Listen, I mean, go and read the stories in First and Second Kings regarding Jezebel. You're going to see these are descriptive historical narrative texts. And then take a look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, and you'll see how Jesus kind of picks up the term Jezebel to refer to a woman who, in a church, is uh, seducing people and you know calls herself a prophetess. And uh, she's seducing Christ's uh, sheep into, you know, practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed with, for idols. And what Christ is doing is basically threatening her. If she doesn't repent, he's going to send her on a, you know, put basically put her under a sick bed. You know, send a disease or way to discipline her. Um, but you know, um, aside from that, you're not going to find anything in Scripture that says. Thus saith the Lord, the Jezebel spirit roameth the earth, looking for those whom she may devour. She's looking for people, and she, you can tell that you're suffering from a Jezebel spirit if you're having a difficult time during the season of Lent and having a difficult time sleeping and keep staying awake at night. Yeah, see, unfortunately, so much of what passes for uh, today's kind of consumerized spiritual warfare reading material is really sensationalistic stuff that takes your eyes off of Christ, puts them firmly back on you, and has you looking for demons under every rock and tree. And worse, uh, the result of this is that it's going to end up messing up your sleep cycles because you're going to be awake at night worrying that Jezebel's witchcraft spirit's out to get you. Hui. 
And yet nowhere in scripture are we led to believe this. Listen, you know, you don't need to worry about Jezebel spirits. And what we know about demons is very little in scripture, very little. Uh, Yes, they exist. Yes, they are certainly there. But listen, even if every demon were taken off the face of the earth, um, our own sinful nature would still be there, you know, tempting us to sin and, you know, and wanting to chase after its own desires. I mean, so there's no point in blaming everything on the demonic. And and I think that's one of the problems with so much of today's popularized spiritual warfare books and material is, is that everything in your life is blamed on some kind of spirit that you are demon that you've got to get the name of and then ha- figure out how to come against it. Yeah, when the, the probably the vast majority of the sin that you're experiencing in your life has no, it doesn't have its root in the demonic. It has its root in your very alive sinful nature and its sinful desires. <clears throat> repent, focus on Christ and his forgiveness for your sins. He has overcome the devil and he has crushed the devil's head uh, by dying and rising on the cross, you know, d- by dying on the cross and rising again on the third day for our justification. You know, don't be out there wasting all of your time focusing on Jezebel spirits and this spirit and that spirit. Knock that off. Repent of that false doctrine and get back to preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins and rest in the fact that Jesus himself has already defeated the strong man. That would be Satan. You don't have to worry about all this stuff. Anyway, you get my point. Moving along. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. That's right, time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Eldenero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Get me a suit that's made out of loot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially any sum I can in vehicle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. Collector. I'm a paper bill inspector. I'm a savage for that cabbage man. To me, it's golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me. Spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I want to be the guy that they send out to prove them. Oh, give me money. That's right. Money. That's Dr. Teeth and money, money, money. All right. That's our money-grubbing televangelist update. Today's uh, money-grubbing televangelist is none other than Brian Houston. Now, I'm going to play for you a snippet from what I played last week where Brian Houston said that Muslims and Christians serve the same God. I'm going to play the audio from it. This was a conference comprised of... Christian pastors and leaders and things like that. And then I'm going to talk about what Brian Houston has said to, quote, clarify his statements. So without any further ado, here's 
Brian Houston, just to remind you of what it is that he said, that where Muslims and Christians serve the same God. I'm going to play it out a little bit longer so we can get the fuller context, and then we'll take a look at uh, what Brian Houston has said to clarify this and why it's, well, it is woefully lacking. Here's Brian Houston. Flower on a particular desert plant. In the same desert, they both find what they're looking for. Do you know, take it all the way back into the Old Testament and the Muslim and you, we actually serve the same God, Allah, to a Muslim, to us, Abba Father, God. And of course, through history, those views have changed greatly. But let's make sure that we view God through the eyes of Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty of a Savior, the loving, open, inclusive arms of a loving God. All right, so that's the comment, okay? Where Brian Houston basically said that, um, yeah, we serve the same God, and, uh, well, we've got a problem now. And that is is that, well, that's not true. Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. And what uh, Brian Houston has done is he's taken to the Internet, and uh, he has decided that he is going to actually comment on the fact that there are uh, discernment bloggers and uh, places that are um, actually <clears throat> uh, noting that what he said is not true. Now, what's funny is is that one of the places that have been commenting on this is the HillsongChurchWatch.com website. And, uh, and Brian Houston himself, from all intents and purposes, it looks like he actually showed up and commented on, on the video. Okay, because the HillsongChurchWatch.com website noted what he said, put the video up there for people to see what he said. And this is a comment that was posted on March 21st, supposedly by Brian Houston himself. Here's what the comment says. He says, I wanted to address the issue directly myself and agree that the statement was indeed clumsy in the moment and did not clearly communicate my intention. I was simply making the point that Christians and Muslims both believe that the God of Abraham is their God, and I apologize for any confusion, and obviously my allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, what's interesting about that comment is that it was left on a blog. Okay, now to kind of explain how weird this is, okay, let's imagine, if you would, that uh, the New York Times published an article about uh, a very prominent public figure, and they didn't do their due diligence and fact-checking. And at the end of it, it turns out that they, in the, the article that they published had some false information about the person that they were writing about. And the, pers- the person complained, and the blogosphere went crazy, saying that they had m- smeared and slandered this person and stuff like that. And lo and behold, the uh, New York Times checked it out and said, Oi, no, this is terrible, mea culpa. We've, we've uh, published false information, and so they're going to issue a retraction. Okay, Here's the question I have for you. Where should the New York Times issue the retraction? You're going on the New York Times website. Right, exactly. You know, So you're saying to me you don't think that the New York Times should go and just leave a comment on one of the bigger blogs where the, their, you know, their smear tactics had been discussed? The answer is of course not. See, that's the thing. Brian Houston left this clarifying statement at a blog. That's, kind of, that's, like, that's like one of the more difficult places to find 
this statement. Now, I should also note that he did make a comment on Twitter, okay, which is a little bit more, um, you know, more visible, but again, not that visible. I mean, if you're familiar with Twitter, I mean, Twitter is one of those things where if you see something in the moment, you catch it. But I mean, for the most part, a lot of tweets just, you know, they go by the wayside, you know, it's like, you know, no, not a lot of people spend time just going through the Twitter, you know, people's, people's Twitter feeds. Well, turns out that on March 17th, somebody had made a comment about the fact that Brian Houston said that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And Brian Houston commented to the tweet on Twitter and said, yes, it's what came out of my mouth, but it's not what I meant. It meant that Islam descends from one of Abraham's sons, Ishmael. We're going to comment on that in just a second here. But again, Twitter is not the place for retractions, okay? Nor is the the comment section of a blog the place for a retraction, especially when what needs to be retracted is a huge gaffe. I mean, this is just ginormous. To say that Allah and God and the God of Christianity are the same God is huge. Huge. That is a ginormous gaffe. And what needs to happen is that Brian Houston needs to set the record straight and issue a retraction and put it in the most highly visible spot. That would be somewhere on the Mars Hill website. Okay, not in the metadata on a on a on a discernment blog and not on Twitter, although, you know, on Twitter, it's going to have a little bit more visibility than, you know, than other places. But see, here's the other problem in this is the timeline. What if I told you that Brian Houston knew on the day that he made this comment that it was a false comment and he still had that video published after the fact. You'd say, well, what? Uh-huh. Yeah, over at the uh, <clears throat> hillsongchurchwatch.com website, a intrepid commenter by the name of Harry writes, he said, Brian made the original statement in a mid-morning session at the Hillsong Conference. Okay, so let's kind of put a timeline on it. It's the Hillsong Conference. Church leaders from around the world have converged on Sydney, Australia, and Brian Houston has the mid-morning plenary speech. So let's say he made the speech at like 9.30 in the morning, okay? Maybe 10.30. I mean, okay, so it's 10.30 in the morning. And here's what Harry says. At the lunchtime question and answer meeting, so apparently there was a lunchtime Q&A, he, Houston was questioned over the statement. He clarified to all the pastors and leaders present at the Q&A session that God and Allah are not the same and that he pointed to the prophecy over Ishmael and I in Genesis chapter 16 verses 11 and 12 whose rebellion ultimately against God the God of Israel would lead to the foundation of Islam. Okay, so here's the problem. Okay, now this thing gets really convoluted. Really convoluted if it's not convoluted or crazy enough already. Houston made the statement mid-morning at the Hillsong Conference, at lunch, he was questioned about it, and at that time clarified and said, that, oh, no, 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 Christians and, and Muslims do not worship the same God, but then at a later time decided to run the unedited lecture from the Hillsong Conference, complete with the statement that he had already repudiated as false, running in it. And then... Rather than issue a very public retraction, he issued a statement. He made a comment on a blog and and sent out a tweet semi-clarifying all of this. 
Yeah, and then to add to all of this on top of it, Islam is not descended, is not something that is a derivative of Ishmael. Ishmael lived 2,700 years. That's right, 2,700 years before Muhammad. 2,700. Islam does not worship the same God as the God of Abraham, okay? Their claim is that that they're somehow connected to Ishmael. That's their claim, but historically, it doesn't hold any water. It'd be the same thing as Mormons claiming that they worship the same God as the God of Abraham, yet Mormonism comes along when? Yeah, in the 19th century, um, you know, and uh, you you get what I'm saying. In fact, I think there's there's, there's a lot of similarities between Mormonism and Islam. So, Here's where we're at right now, is that, yes, Brian Houston is going out there trying to clear up the record, but he hasn't actually formally issued a real retraction and clarified a good biblical clarification, and his, in the, his clarification statements are actually adding more confusion. What he needs to do, because really what this seems more like to me than anything, uh, what he needs to do is right there on the homepage of Hillsong, issue a real retraction and said that it was really wrong of me to run that video after I already knew that the statement was false and create all this confusion. And I, we need to make this very clear. Christianity and, and uh, Islam do not worship the same God. And the Muslim claims to being you know, somehow descendant, you know, a religion coming through the descendants of Ishmael is also patently false. And Muslims need to repent and trust Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of their sins. He needs to do something like that. And short of that, um, really all he's doing is engaging in spin and damage control. That's my take on where we're at right now. Moving along. Time for a Mark Driscoll update. Go to church right down the street. Don't hear God's word no more. The pastor says we don't feed no sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy, you're here to satisfy the leader's God-given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off, and another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. Those are the options. 
but the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus, they got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus, they got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. right and uh, just to let you know we still have not heard any public statements from mark driscoll repudiating or repenting of those statements about the pile of dead bodies behind the mars hill bus in fact that's what we're going to be talking about here um from warren throckmorton's uh, blog site over at uh, patheos the um the headline reads 20 former mars hill pastors seek mediation with mark driscoll and mars hill church leadership that's right, 20. Okay, now, how on earth do you burn through 20 pastors? And they're seeking mediation, okay? Um, here's what it says. On Monday, March 17th, uh, 20 former Mars Hill pastors sent a letter to the executive elders and board of advisors and accountability of Mars Hill Church with an invitation to enter into a process of mediation designed to lead to mutual repentance and reconciliation. According to far, uh, former Mars Hill pastors Dave Kraft and Kyle Fit, uh, Fistenberg, the pastors want to bring in specialists in conflict resolution to facilitate the process. As of this this writing, no response to the letter has come from the Mars Hill leadership. The executive elders are Mark Driscoll, Sutton, uh, Sutton Turner, and Dave Bruscus. The executive uh, elders also sit on the Board of Advisors and Accountability, along with independent members Paul Tripp, Michael Van Skayek, and James McDonald and Larry Osborne. That's right. You, that's James McDonald. Okay. Now, by the way, there was an update to the story as of Friday, March 21st. Still no word at all, no response to the invitation to enter into mediation from 20 former Mars Hills, Mars Hill pastors. I get 20. Okay. Let me give you kind of an idea here. I've been a confessional Lutheran now for almost 25 years. And, um, you know, one of the first churches that I was, uh, that I was attending as a confessional Lutheran was Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, pastored by the Reverend William Swirla. Do you know who's the current pastor there right now? Bill Swirla. Okay. Um, I moved to a different part of Southern California. So I started attending first Lutheran church in uh, Lake Elsinore, California. This was maybe 20 years ago, maybe 19, but uh, that, that was being pastored by a guy by the name of Kevin Colander. Do you know who the pastor is there right now? Kevin Colander. And then after I moved out of the Lake Elsinore area, I moved to San Clemente. Um, I started attending uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, pastored by Ron Hodel. Do you know who pastors there right now? 
Ron Hodel. <laughs> I mean, I, I, in my experience as a confessional Lutheran, I haven't seen a lot of turnover of Lutheran pastors. Now, I, granted, I've, I've heard that it happens. Not every congregation, you know, holds on to their pastors for a long time. But in this particular case, um, you know, what we're talking about here at Mars Hill, they have 20, 20 former pastors who are seeking mediation, which I think is a great thing for them to be doing. They're basically saying, listen, we've all been wronged. We want mediation. And they're letting everybody know that they're doing this. And Mars Hill's response has been to stonewall them and not respond. That's weird. What's even weirder is is how large the pile of dead pastors is at Mars Hill. Again, 20, 20. Oh, and by the way, you know, I talked about this on Issues Etc. today. Um, the folks over at Issues Etc., you know, they, they've noted the fact that a whole bunch of sermons and different things are disappearing off the Mars Hill website. What does it mean? Well, we don't know what it means. The reason why we don't know what it means is because Mars Hill hasn't told us what it means. It's just the evidence is just now disappearing left and right. What? How do? Our, how are we to interpret silence? Well, the thing is, is that I've seen this before. Uh, back in the day when uh, Mark Driscoll preached that horrible sermon on the Song of Solomon, um, it led to John MacArthur uh, writing a four-part series called The Rape of the Song of Solomon, where he takes Mark Driscoll's uh, <clears throat> hermeneutics of the Song of Solomon back behind the woodshed and gives a, th- a thorough thrashing, which is what it needed. And you know what happened after that? Did Mark Driscoll publicly say, you know, you're right, John, I shouldn't have preached that. That was wrong. The things I said in that sermon were absolutely wrong and outrageous. He didn't do that. No, the sermon just disappeared off the Internet. It went away. And uh, when I, uh, a few years ago, broke the story with, the, with, Mars Hill, with Mark Driscoll talking about the pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, did Mark Driscoll issue a statement apologizing for that? Um, no, he didn't. Do you know what happened, though? It disappeared. That, that MP3, that resource is no longer available on the Mars Hill website. It's just gone. Um, so we, there's some weird things going on over there at, um, at Mars Hill. And I've noticed that uh, you know, his apology hasn't actually caused you know, the, things to die down. If anything, they continue to stay at a fever pitch because what his statements are so dissatisfying and, and are, are non-clarifying, kind of like Brian Houston's. That um, you know, it's interesting. I think that the you know that the folks there um, they keep putting the pressure on them, and I hope they continue to do so because it's time for Mark Driscoll to actually answer to all of these things that he's been saying and doing over the years, and have to give an accounting because he has not done so up to this point. So pray that the twenty former pastors at Mars Hill are able to uh, <clears throat> to have their mediation because I think that would be absolutely fantastic if that could happen. So that's something for us to uh, pray and to hope for. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, uh, kind of an extended Beth Moore update demonstrating that this woman is not a sound exegete. In fact, she's not a good Bible teacher at all. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. (laughs) You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. in other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. An angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their, their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention, angels. This is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the um, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And uh, I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have uh, been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, <clears throat> relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George. Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay, Harold. Where you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. 
Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, what are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. <laughs> I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? <laughs> Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with the gaffes of your favorite celebrity pastor. With any luck, you'll stop listening to him. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Thank <laughs> you. 
That's right. It's time for a Beth Moore update. Faster than a hummingbird on methamphetamines. Able to write nine blog posts before she finishes her 15th cup of coffee at 6.30 in the morning. And despite all of those amazing, talented, speedy, uh, well, things that she can do, she clearly can't exegete a biblical passage correctly. So that's Flight of the Bumblebee, our Beth Moore update music. Now, what we're going to be listening to today is a segment from the Life Today television program where they have Wednesdays with Beth Moore. And she's going to be teaching us about the story of Naaman the leper. um, And her exegesis proves that she's not a good exegete. To explain all of this, here's Beth Moore. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of 2 Kings. I've been in 2 Kings lately in a series that we've done together. Uh, we have been jar getters with the widow uh, and Elisha. And now we're going to look at a different place in the narrative, 2 Kings. We've been jar gatherers together with the widow? Uh, how'd you do that? This chapter 5, turn with me there. We're actually going to have a good many weeks on these passages because it will be a part one and part two. So the story will go on all the way from verse one of chapter five to verse 14. But in this first half of the series, we're going to settle on verses one through eight. And for any of us that know the rest of the story, we are going to be very anxious and pushing against that ninth verse so that we can get straight to it. And we're going to have to hold back There's too much that we could miss if we rush too fast into the next segment. So right here, 2 Kings 5, I'd like to read verses 1 through 8 to you. Naaman, everybody say Naaman. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. I mean, that's packing like a woman, isn't it? <laughs> packing like a woman. Now, we won't, we won't get... Now, that's a good line. Um, okay, now, I'm going to give her credit here. She's doing something that we don't see any of the top celebrity seeker-driven pastors doing. You know what she's doing? She's reading the text, and she's starting with the text. I mean, I'll be blunt. We're hearing more Bible in context from Beth Moore in the last three minutes than we hear, well, in a year's worth of preaching at many seeker-driven megachurches. So you got to give her props for that. Okay, so, okay, she's reading the text. She's doing a good job. Funny line about packing like a woman. Okay, 
this part of the narrative, but he's brought it to give it away. And you know, when you, it just, you don't have to worry so much about sizes when you just wear a lot of robes. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like sort of like one size fits all. So if we just stop there, somebody's going to think, now that's a little bit of overpacking. He's probably got all his uh, hair products in a carry-on. But um, no, this is because he is bringing, it's why they mentioned the money. He, he's going to pay uh, for his healing, if he possibly can, it says in verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. I'm so intrigued by the story. I want you to back up with me and get a little bit of it. Um, okay, so far so good, right? I mean, I mean, you, this is more Bible than we hear in most sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith. What could possibly be going wrong here? It's called an adventure and missing the point and kind of making a mountain out of a molehill and missing the elephants walking by while you're stepping on ants. This is kind of the idea here, but let's continue. In a context so that we can uh, work it out together because it seems like at first, what does an archaic story like this have to do with us? We were talking earlier before prayer about this being a living, breathing word. That yeah, but you've only read half the story. You, you kind of left us in the, you know, the middle of the narrative here. Then you ask the question, what does this have to do with us? If you'd finish the narrative, we'd all be able to figure out what's going on and why it applies to us, which is why when you preach or teach through a story, it's best to not turn it into a serial. You know, and what I mean by that, oh man, do they even still do this nowadays? Like when I was growing up, you know, when they would have multi-part series on a, my favorite television show they'd have a cliffhanger and then you know they, and then the words would come up at the end of it to be continued you know the, the hero's there and there's the villain with a knife getting ready to plunge it into his heart and then and all of a sudden the, the action stops and to be continued okay <clears throat> so i mean for beth moore to stop partway through this narrative and it's not that long um for her to stop partway through and then ask the question, how does this relate to us? Kind of, well, that's not good exegesis, okay? So let me read the rest of the story. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would he would surely come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So he's expecting some, you know, miraculous healing service, right? Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. By the way, um, Elijah here, um, good reason why he wouldn't go out there. Naaman's unclean. Yeah, he becomes ceremonially unclean by being in his presence, okay? But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. 
will you not do it? He, he Has he actually said, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, just like Jesus's healings, okay, in the New Testament, when Jesus heals people, they're not just healed physically, okay? Naaman also comes out of the waters of the Jordan, a believer in the one true God. The Lord worked repentance in his heart and gave him faith as a gift along with the healing that he received. So here's what it says. So then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will not, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, well, if not, let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God except for Yahweh. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said, go in peace. So there, I mean, great story. What does this have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. It has to do with being brought to repentant faith and trust in the one true God. This is a beautiful story. Of, uh, of God working the miracle of repentance and healing the man of his leprosy. I mean, this is just amazing. And, I mean, he, he goes into the waters of the Jordan, the pagan, and he comes out, not only a pagan, but a grumbling pagan, and he comes out a humble believer in the one true God. <clears throat> this has everything to do with us. And so we're already off to a kind of a bad start here, although Beth Moore started well by reading, you know, the first eight verses, she kind of cut it off in like a weird spot. And whenever somebody does that, it makes me wonder what they're up to. Well, let's find out what she's up to. Even in a story that happened thousands of years ago, we are going to see that it jumps into our here and now experience in such a way that it could get us right in between the eyes. And I pray that it does. Now, okay, so this is going to jump into our here and now experience. Okay. This part gets me. Notice what happens here because the, the little girl goes to her mistress. It says that in verse three, she said to her mistress, this is, so you've got the girl who is the servant. We don't know how you young, um, probably in her uh, young teens. Uh, so she goes to her mistress and she said to her, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, now that's going to be the king um, over Israel. I love the transfer of information because it's going from the little girl to the wife, from the wife to the husband Naaman, from Naaman to the king over the people of God. And I want you to think that through for a moment. Okay. Um, yeah, so there was a nice game of telephone. What does that have to do with us? Because in this transfer, it put them in the situation where the mistress had to say something to her husband about a problem perhaps they had not wanted to discuss. I love that because how many of us, for those of us who are married, how many of us are in a situation uh, where no one ever brings up what the other person's obvious issue is? 
Um, this is called eisegesis. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with what that term is, eis, the Greek word for into, Jesus to read. So she's reading into the text something that's not there. That's what Beth Moore is doing. A sound exegete is somebody who exegetes out what's in the passage. Nowhere in this passage are we led to believe that there was some kind of icy, cold silence between Naaman and his wife regarding the obvious problem of his leprosy. Uh, strike number one here against Beth during this sermon. How many times? And it goes both ways. We have all sorts of stuff. But we will go for years and years and years in complete denial. No one in the couple ever says the obvious thing. We've got this. She would have had to go into him and go, you know about that leprosy? And uh, if he was like some of us, he would have been going like, what leprosy? You know what I'm saying? But he didn't do that. Nowhere in the text does it even hint that this is what's going on. Just there's a little vulnerability here between this wife and this husband where one did not have to act like the other did not have their very, very obvious, serious malady that could be treated. And, and, she's, and it says that he went and spoke such and such. That is um, what, how the ancient rendering would be for us going. And, and then she said like, da-da-da. Um, I have an Australian friend that says blah, blah, blah. It just kills me every time. Instead of blah, 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 it's blah, blah, blah. And so this transfer of information. And then notice that it says something so powerful about him. In verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. We're going to be sitting in this first verse. So the First verse, you're going to be sitting there because it says something powerful about Naaman there? What does it say? Almost throughout our entire time together in this first half of the series, it says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. And in high favor, a great man with his master. That says something huge. I I want... What does it say exactly? you to think about what is prevalent in our culture. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a cynic about our culture. I see God doing things all over the world. I see some things happening in areas of injustice that are just profound and glorious and in due time. I see thrilling things that the testimony of Christ Jesus is going all over the world. He is revealing himself through dreams to people that don't have any access whatsoever to the scriptures and any kind of Christian programming. I'm not cynical about the world we live in, but I I will tell you this. We do live in a Western culture where to be a great man is not to be under authority, uh, to be a great man, uh, to be your own master is what it would be to be a great man. Um, What's it matter if Naaman was under authority or not under authority? When we get to him at verse 1, there in Second uh, Kings chapter 5, um, it says, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man and, and with his, his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Okay, notice it, it makes it clear that who's in charge here, the Lord is. Um, but Naaman is a pagan at this point. He is not a believer in Yahweh. Um He's, you know, clearly a guy who's had victory in battle and, you know, he's, you know, he's head of the army, but the king is over him. Well, who cares? That doesn't make him great. 
It just means he's a man under authority. But, you know, in the ranks of Syria at the time, he was a superstar. You know, he was way up there, way up the chain of command, at the very top of the chain of command. And the only person above him was the king of Syria. So what? He still at that point was a false, you know, he was an unbeliever who worshipped false gods, namely Rimon. <clears throat> we continue. To his master, a great man is his master. So as I was studying this, an old poem started coming back to my mind, and I wouldn't have known then that it was from 1875. I, I would have just known. An old poem? It would have been a, around for a long time. Some of you who are older, even though we uh, actually, to those who are younger, you might have thought we were alive in 1875, but we were not. <laughs> um, but uh, some of those that are older, I, I don't It was in our English classes and things. So you, you'll perhaps be very familiar with it. It's a poem by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. And I want you to hear it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul in the fell clutch of circumstance i have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishment the scroll i am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What we know from a biblical perspective is that without the author of our soul, we are like a flea on a ship on a sheepdog. Can anybody go there with me? Um, I got to tell you, I was in um, a restaurant in a different state a couple of months ago when the... What on earth does the poem Invictus have to do with Naaman the leper and his healing and becoming a penitent believer in the one true God? Um, waitress uh, that was so graciously at our table taking our order. Um, she, I could see on her forearm, you can see this just enough to know that there is a tattoo going across her sweet little arm. And obviously I said to her, hey, you have any problem with me taking a picture of that? Because I had just read the poem. Because it says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of of my soul. And I mean, somebody's got that tattooed on her, but we're not the master of our fate. We are not. There's a God in heaven who ordains all things. And yeah, this is true, but don't you think you could actually like use actual passages from the Bible that say this rather than uh, the passage you're teaching from second Samuel chapter five, verse one, that's not the point of Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, like at all. Praying somewhere along the way, she's going to have to have that rewritten. He <laughs> is. My God is. I'm going to make a couple of points with you, and it starts with this one uh, in this part of our series. Number one is this based on our, um, our very first verse in Second Kings chapter 5. Greatness finds its sole validity in the eyes of the master. Great... Uh. Okay, so point number one, and the name of her lesson here is Claim and Naaman. Um, so number one in her point, so this is her takeaway. She wants everybody to know this is an important biblical point here. Greatness finds its sole validity in the eyes of the master, to which I basically say, how on earth are you getting this from the story of Naaman? 
which commentaries from biblical scholars make this point, Beth? Yes. You and I, in this series, we're going to be talking about what it is to be a great man or woman. And and we're just going to deal with that um, transparently. This isn't about any of us being great. Did you notice the great Naaman, when he's finally healed, becomes the humble Naaman, who begs for pardon and peace and doesn't want to offend the one true God. His allegiance is completely changed. Could it ever be in our minds, I'm just going to tell you up front, one of the things that I pray for for my children is that they will be great men and women of God. Can we have the courage to pray that? What would that mean before God for us? (laughs) This story is not about any of us becoming great men or women of God, at least not verse one. To have that kind of request before him, what would it be? For you and me, believers in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, to be great men and women. That's the challenge on the table for every one of us, regardless. How is that a challenge on the table from 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1? In verse 1, we're talking about a pagan leper. Yeah, he's under authority, but you big deal. I mean, he's not a great man of God at all at this point. He's an unbeliever. Of your occupation, regardless of your background, I don't care if you told me today I'm so painfully shy, I can barely tell somebody my last name. I'm saying that it is on the table in Scripture that you could become a great woman, a great Man of God. Now this has crossed the line. Now this has become narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as narcissus. This text has nothing to do with you or me becoming great anythings, unless it's great penitent believers in the one true God for the forgiveness of our sins, if that's what you mean by great. But that's not what she's talking about here. So she's taken Second Samuel chapter five, verse one, and started with eisegesis, and now we're into full-blown Stephen Furtick-esque narcissus. Wow. What would that look like? What if we had the courage to just go, okay, what would it be to be great as a woman or a man of God? Well, it finds its sole validity in the eyes of the master. He was great with his master. It was his master who thought he was great. Now, I want to pitch something to you. We're not going to do it together because it's much too broad a uh, a study and the context is all over the scriptures. But sometime, for those of you who are Bible students, go check it out. You will not study more interesting eye-opening concepts than authority in the Word of God. And I mean, it starts right off the bat because, I mean, in Genesis, he is already telling man what to rule over. I've given you to rule over. But all this idea of authority is that for every person God places in authority, they are under authority. And so there's this thing of, of, of that, that to fight For authority in the word of God and in the ways of God, to fight for it is to forfeit it. (laughs) How is she getting this out of 2 Samuel 5 verse 1? 
Because if you have to fight for authority, you don't understand that to be a great person of authority is to be a person under authority. Do you remember that point in Matthew 8, 9? Where it's like she just threw these notes together like five minutes before she went on the air. It's like she was grabbing at stuff. Did you actually read any commentaries? Um, Jesus uh, comes in contact with the centurion and the centurion says, listen, you don't need to come to my house to do what I'm asking you to do. I'm a man under authority. I have people that work for me. I get this. You just say it and it will be done. And it says in the scriptures in uh, Matthew 8 verse 10, it says that that Jesus. Now, I'm going to point something out here. She's in Matthew chapter 8. Let me read the story again because she's missing the whole point. It's Matthew chapter 8, the story of the centurion um, who's got a kid who's sick. Okay, so here's what it says. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, I'm going to pause right here. Now, verse 10, it says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him. Now, pause. Is Jesus going to marvel at the centurion's authority or that he's under authority? No, Jesus is going to marvel at the man's faith. Same faith that Naaman had after he came out of the Jordan River. Okay, So here's what it says. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So the very text that Beth Moore is now pulling to somehow cross-reference with 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, Naaman was under authority, actually has nothing to do with authority. The big punchline is that the centurion had great faith. Faith in whom? In Jesus. Marveled and said, I have not seen such faith as that all over Israel. Because he was a man who understood. What if we understood the concept of authority. Yeah, I'm going to back that up because what you just heard is her completely missing the point. It's almost as if a blind person's you know reading the text and is completely oblivious as to what the real details of the text are. This has nothing to do with authority. It has everything to do with faith. In the scriptures, in um, Matthew 8, verse 10, it says that, that Jesus marveled and said, I have not seen such faith as that all over Israel. Because he was a man who understood. What if we understood the concept of authority? And one reason why I can have freedom and you can have freedom to be able to pray something like God, raise my children to be mighty men and women, great men and women of God is because he says, let me tell you greatness to me. How did we go from, you know, 
this passage is about faith. This, the story of Naaman is about faith. It's about saving faith. It's, and you're turning it into authority. And so now all of a sudden I'm praying that my kids become great. How are you getting this? The one who is servant among you, the servants among you, those are the ones that have greatness to me. That's God's who is servant of all. That is the greatest in the kingdom. Wow. So there we go. That was just absolute hermeneutical nonsense. I mean, talk about not paying attention to what's going on in the biblical text. And that was flat out narcissistic eisegesis coming from Beth Moore, the highly trumpeted and praised and lauded great Bible teacher. I mean, if if she was in my hermeneutics class and she turned that in on this passage, I would have flunked her. It's just that simple. All right, we're up on our second break. Stay tuned for some more weird Bible twisting. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, a Troy Grambling sermon from the Daredevil series. More bad exegesis. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. You're going to need your Bible for this sermon review. Yeah, don't ever listen to my program with an open mind. Always with an open Bible. 
All right, let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith word equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via potential church out there in uh, florida they're not a church yet they're just a church in potentia troy grambling presiding the name of the sermon series is daredevil this is from the first sermon in the series and apparently sometime during the sermon series they're going to actually show the footage of Troy Grambling being lit on fire on purpose. <laughs> yeah, because he's a daredevil. All I can say is you need your Bible. We're going to be doing some uh, counter-teaching during this uh, sermon today, pointing out that if you pay attention to what the Scriptures actually say in context, you won't be hoodwinked by bad teachers like Troy Grambling. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado... Here is Daredevil by Troy Gramling. Here we go. Impossible. It's too difficult. It's never been done before. Ever heard that? This is the song of the sidelines. The words of the unwilling. The declaration of the downers. Used to be that you couldn't do more than two midair turns on a skateboard until Tony Hawk landed the world's first 900-degree spin. Everyone said a five-minute mile was impossible. Until Roger Bannister did it in less than four. They said only an idiot with a death wish would try to jump the Grand Canyon. Till the day Robbie Knievel cleared 228 feet of open air with just a motorcycle. Uh, can, can I ask the obvious question here? Um, how many of you out there think that uh, jumping the Grand Canyon has anything to do with being a Christian? How about doing a 900 on your skateboard in a pool? You know, um, are you less sanctified if you don't jump the Grand Canyon or if you can't run a five-minute mile? I I don't even think I can run a 10-minute mile. But uh, you get what I'm saying here. What's your four-minute mile? I I don't have a four-minute mile. Or Grand Canyon. I don't have a Grand Canyon. Think it's impossible? Think again. Where in the Bible am I told to have a Grand Canyon or a a four-minute mile? Because in this life, lots of things seem impossible until they're not. Daredevil, doing what others say is impossible. Yeah, that was the intro to the sermon itself. All right. It is good to see you guys this afternoon. So glad you're here and kicking off uh, an exciting series as we get ready for Easter. Can you imagine? Easter is just six weeks, counting this weekend. It'll be Easter. And um, if you heard Mr. Dizzy's story, you, you remember what had such a big impact on his life? What his son did, he invited him to a Christmas Eve service. And, and it's amazing how God can take one opportunity to connect with him. 
and do in a moment what we can't do in a lifetime. So even as Easter six weeks away, I encourage you to start inviting and uh, getting your friends and family here. If you look at the very front of your program, all right, pull out your program. If you're watching online, just click um, the little tab there and it'll pull it up. And it says, Daredevil, that's what this series is uh, called. And it says, let's just read that subtitle out loud together. You ready? Doing impossible. Now we're going to read it as if we really, you know. Doing what others say is impossible. So we're doing a responsive reading from the, the, the notes. For this isn't a responsive reading from God's word. And where in the Bible does it say that we're supposed to do the things that other people say are impossible? I'm saying, all right, like impossible. Because you know there's something in your life that you feel called to do that others have said, you know what, that's impossible. You didn't. You know that you feel feelings, nothing more than feelings. Yeah, you, you feel that you're called to do something that everybody else says is impossible. Where does the Bible say that I'm supposed to have a feeling that from God that I'm supposed to do something that everyone else says is impossible? Grow up in the right family. You don't have the right kind of education. You don't have enough money. You don't live in the right place. I mean, there's something that you would just, I mean, you just, you want to get, but they say it's impossible. So we're going to read this. And I want you to think about that person in your life that has told you it is impossible over and over again. Okay. I mean, whoever it is, you kind of, it's time to tee them up. Okay. Now, here we go. You ready? Doing Others say is impossible. That's what this series is about. We're going to spend the next several weeks talking about that. And I think the place we need to begin is right there. What is it that you are running after? What is the, the dream, you might say, that God has put in your heart? I, I can't... Where in the Bible does it say that God's going to put a dream in my heart? Put it up here like this because it all starts here, right? It all starts with a promise. God gives all of us a promise. If you look in your outline, you've probably read the scripture before, seen it on a plaque somewhere. But when I talk about the promise or I talk about your dream, I'm talking about Jeremiah chapter 29, 11. Here's what it says. For I know the plans I have for who? You. Who's you? Me, right? Now, I'm going to let him teach for a little bit. Open up your Bible to Jeremiah 29. From time to time, I actually have to do the full teaching on this, and we're going to take a look at it in context. When you apply context, context, context to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, it becomes painfully clear he's twisting God's word. But I want you to hear from him what he thinks this passage is about before we actually open up uh, my, our Bibles, and I'll, I'll walk you through it. God is speaking here. God says, I know the plans I have for you. So when I look at that, I first begin to realize what? God has plans for me, so that means I'm not an accident. You know, I'm not like something my parents weren't expecting or maybe like me, your birth was an act of violence. No, 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 no. Psalm 127 says that God knit you together in your mother's womb. So therefore, he's created you to accomplish something of significance. God has a plan for your life. That's Okay, so Jeremiah 29, 11 supposedly teaches that God has created you for something significant that you're supposed to accomplish in life. Okay, we're going to apply our three sound rules for biblical exegesis, and they are context, context, context. Here's the context, larger context, if you would. This is a letter that's going to be, uh, that God is going to have the prophet Jeremiah write down. So God is actually dictating a letter 
to Jeremiah, and the letter is going to the captives, those who've been carried away in captivity to Babylon. Keep in mind, uh, Israel, for a long time, had engaged in unrepentant idolatry and rank sin. God sent prophets calling them to repent and to be forgiven, and their response was to kill and get rid of God's prophets. Jeremiah prophesied for a long time, calling Israel to repent of their sins, and God basically said, fine, they can have it their way, and he's going to send Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to destroy the kingdom of Judah, to sack Jerusalem, and that only a remnant, we're talking about 10% of the population would survive, and those who survived would be taken captive in Babylon for 70 years. For 70 full years. So this is what this context is. This is not a, this is not a verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, given to a bunch of yuppie suburbanites in, uh, in you know, midtown uh, Jerusalem, you know, who were at Starbucks one day, you kind of musing about what's the purpose of life. That's not what this is about. The context is, you know, we're talking about one in 10 people who survived this horrific attack by Nebuchadnezzar, and now they are no longer even in their homes. They were unceremoniously marched from Jerusalem back to Babylon. Many of them died along the way, and now they're being held captive in a foreign country. The temple has been for the most part, destroy the wall of Jerusalem, torn down. Okay, so there's no sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. They, God is doing this in judgment, and they're thinking at this point, God has completely abandoned us. We are in big trouble. Okay, that's what this context is. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon." It said, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Yeah, so a lot... In, in the weird irony of ironies, some of the false prophets had survived, and they're in exile, right? And they're 
spewing dreams and visions to the people in, in, in exile. And God's saying, don't listen to them. Listen again. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and then I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen who did not go with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten that they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword and famine and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a terror and a hissing and a reproach among the nations where I have driven them because they did not pay attention to my words declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. So hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning Ahab, the son of Koliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Okay, there's the there's the letter. That's not all of it, but you get the gist of it. Okay, this is not some blanket promise that God has some dream destiny for your life and some purpose for you. That's what really what Troy Gramling is doing here. He is doing the very thing that God warned about. People who are talking about dreams and their dreams and visions and things, saying things are going to be well, and they're prophesying lies in the name of Yahweh. That is exactly what um, uh, well, Troy Gramling is doing in this sermon. He is a lot like... Uh, the false prophet Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, and uh, and well, if he doesn't repent, his his fate will be worse than theirs. We continue. Good news, right? Not just a plan for mine, not just a plan for the good people. No, no, God has a plan for my life. Well, what kind of plan does He have, right? Because that's the next question that I ask. He says, "Plans to what's the next word? Prosper." I'm liking it. All right, how many of you would like to prosper? All right, it's prospering your family, your finances, your relationships, your connections. He says, I have a plan for you. This is so awesome. And the plan that I have for you is one for you to prosper, not to harm you. God just calls it out because some people think that God's just looking to catch them. Oh, I saw what you did. Uh Oh, you're in trouble. No, no, no. God has a plan. It's not to harm us. It's for us, number one, to prosper and plans to give you what second? 
hope. That sounds pretty good, right? And then what's the next one? A future. So God is thinking about us. Here's what I want you to do is I want you to write down just a few of the dreams that you have in your heart. Would you just write those down? I hope this is not the first time. I hope you've practiced this at several different times in your life. But just kind of write down. What are some of the dreams that you have? What are some of those things that you're looking toward? Now, I need to make a note here. Troy Gramling is fulfilling a prophecy of Scripture. The prophecy was from the Apostle Paul. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what the prophecy said. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and I would say and now is, when people will not endure sound teaching, but... Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring enduring suffering, do the work of of an evangelist, fulfilling your ministry. Yeah, this is the typical quintessential ear-scratching sermon where he's not rightly handling God's word. This whole sermon is a myth. Because when you think about that dream, whatever it is that you wrote down, okay, uh, there is a distance between the day you got the dream, the day that God nudged your heart with the promise, and when you actually see it fulfilled. And for some of us, that distance seems a long way, doesn't it? I mean, you got the dream years ago, some of us maybe decades ago, and you've been walking towards it, and you're like, God, is it ever going to happen? Is that relationship ever going to be reconciled? Is that business ever going to get started? Is that financial breakthrough ever going to happen? But there is a distance between the promise or the dream that we have. So he's basically saying you have received a prophetic dream or vision from God. Now the question is, what's taken it so long to be fulfilled? The answer is simple. The Bible nowhere teaches that God's going to lay a dream on your heart for some significant thing that you're going to do. Jeremiah 29, 11 doesn't teach this. And the actual fulfillment of that promise. And here's the cool thing. God knows that. And so in Hebrews 11 and 12, he helps us with this. Those two chapters are about you and I accomplishing what others say is impossible. No, it's not. Hebrews 11 and 12 are not about that at all. In fact, if you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews 11. And let's take a look at what's going on there. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. 
By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the, an heir of, right, of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we're talking about saving faith here, and then there's these exploits that go along with it. Um, but we'll continue to pay attention to the list here so that we can see what's going on here. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Did you catch that? Hebrews 11.13 says, All of these people died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are speaking uh, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Uh-huh. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Hebrews 11 makes it clear that all of these people died in faith, having not received what they were looking forward to. It was still to come. In fact, it still is to come. And we Christians have the same hope that Abraham had, that city whose foundation is the heavenly kingdom itself. If that is, all right, you got the promise on our way to the fulfillment, what's the path? How do you get there? Because I just don't want to be here. I don't want to just have a dream like everybody else. I don't want to just hope. I think a lot of people hope, right? They sit around, they're like, oh, I hope I find a good person to do life with. Oh, I hope I get to start a company. Oh, I hope I get to be wealthy. Oh, I hope I get to whatever. You know, they, they hope, but they're not on a journey. They're not on the- I hope you repent, Troy, because what you're preaching is blasphemous and will send you and all these other people to hell. What is the pathway from the dream that God's put in your heart? Scripture says God will give us the desires of our heart. So he, it's not just something of the skin, but it's something of the heart that God puts in there. How do you get there? What's the path? It, it's faith. All right. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I'll be honest with you. In the last probably three or four years, God has taught me more about faith than I learned maybe in the first 20 years of being a Christ follower. Because I've always thought of faith as being something mystical. I've always thought of faith as something that I prayed for and since God just helped me to have faith, you know, and just kind of waiting for God to hit me with it. Not understanding that faith is not mystical, but faith is actually positional. Faith is active, okay? And I, and I want you to see that. The path is faith. It's found in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says faith, because if faith is a pathway, then I sure want to know what in the world faith is. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. Let's read it. It's up on the screen. Let's read it out loud together at all of our campuses. Faith is the confidence. 
Yeah, they're going to take it down. All right, you guys take it off the screen if you would. Let's say it again. Don't look at your paper. We're going to memorize this scripture. Faith is the confidence that what? One more time. Faith is the confidence. Okay, so let's think about that. Faith is what? Faith is that confidence that I have that the dream God has given me is actually going to happen. It's wrong. Okay, now this is what we call a referent problem in hermeneutics. Okay, let me read the verse again. Faith is the assurance or the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is it that we as Christians are hoping for that we have faith in? What is, it, what is the conviction that we have that we do not see? Is it some dream that God has laid on our heart? Hebrews 11.1, 1, the referent of the thing hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, the referent is not some dream that God has laid on your heart. It's the conviction of things hoped for, the coming heavenly kingdom, the re- return of Christ, our being caught up with him, our being with, forever with him in a new heavens and new earth. That's what this is talking about. This is the ultimate hope and goal of our faith. And this is why Hebrews eleven thirteen says all of these people who we're talking about by, you know, that live by faith, they all died not having received the things promised. This Hebrews 11.1 1 is not teaching us that the, the faith is the hoping for and believing in the, in the dream that God has laid on your heart. That is the wrong referent. He's twisting God's word. I'm hope, faith is not hoping it will happen. Faith is not, it'd be good if it happens. No, no, faith is, I got confidence, man. Not because I'm good, but because he's great. And so I am walking towards faith is the confidence I have as I move towards the fulfillment of the promise he's put in my heart. And then if you go on, therefore, right, it gives us the assurance about the things we can't see. Because you can't see this right now, can you? I mean, you can see it here, but you can't see it here. If you go in and try to get a loan on your dream, the banker is going to be like, what? Yeah, I want to get, man, I got this big restaurant and, you know, it's going to have booths like this and we're going to serve this kind of food. And he's like, well, you know, where's the deed on the property? And where's, well, I don't, I mean, it's here, you know, he's not going to loan you any money. He's going to call the local hospital and say, come get this person because, right? And God says, no, 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 faith is the ability. It's the confidence as we're moving forward that gives us the assurance of the things we can't see. Because when God gives us the dream, you can't see it with your eyes. That's why the New Testament says we... Again, nowhere in the Bible does it say God's going to give us a dream. By faith, not by sight, not by what we see with our eyes. Now, then he gives us in Hebrews 11, he gives us this example. All of these things that happened that people said were impossible. And that's, that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's just people standing up and saying, hey, I just wanted you to know, you know what? What they said is impossible. It happened by faith. Let me show you Hebrews chapter 11. And what more can I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon. Now he's jumped to verse 32. He read Hebrews 11 verse 1. And now he skipped all the way over to verse 32. You know why? Because if he actually read it, he would not be able to make this text say what it's saying. What he's saying that it says. Because if he had read Hebrews eleven thirteen, it would blow everything up and show him to be a false teacher. Again, Hebrews eleven thirteen, all of these died in faith, not 
having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is not for he has prepared for them a city. They didn't receive the thing that they were hoping for. Not in this lifetime. Because Hebrews 11, 1, Hebrews 11 isn't about a tree, a, achieving some dream destiny that God lays on your heart. Now, Troy Grandling has skipped over all of Hebrews 11 to go to verse 32 to make his point. But he didn't read 13 because had he read it, everybody would see he's not telling the truth. I don't have time to tell you about Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets who through, what's the next word? What'd they do? They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions. Remember, Daniel, that's impossible, right? They quenched the fury of flames. I like that, especially after last night. They escaped the edge of a sword. I mean, they did all these incredible things. Why? Because they... Yeah, and he stopped. Isn't that weird? He keeps avoiding all of the verses that, that would disagree with his theology. He, he, okay, let me show you what he did. Okay, he read verse 34 and verse 35, part of it, um, but he didn't read the rest. Let me read this. Okay, so we'll, we'll start, add context here. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Oh, it sounds so great. Keep reading. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were, uh, t- some were tortured. Did you catch that? Uh-huh. Hebrews 11.35, second sentence. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Whoops. Isn't it weird that Troy Grambling read the first half of that list, but systematically avoided the second half of that list, talking about people being mocked and imprisoned and sawn in two and persecuted and wandering in deserts? You know why he did? Because had he read the passage in context and read the second half of that list, everybody would know that what he's saying is a flat-out demonic and that's what this is, demonic lie. The faith to keep moving towards the fulfillment of the dream that God had put in their heart. It's the opposite of what Hebrews 11, 1 says. Remember, let's say, what it, let's say Hebrews 11, 1 again. Faith is the... Oh, that's pretty good. Now, some of us are like, faith is... Right? Faith is the confidence of what we hope for will actually happen because it gives us the assurance of the things we cannot see. That's what faith does. So then what is the problem? 
why aren't there more people living their dreams? Because I think if you're honest, a lot of people where you work, they're not living their dreams. They've given up on their dreams. So what? Do you think the people that Hebrews 11 talks about, they wandered around in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, that they were sitting there going, man, when when am I going to experience my dream? Or how about when they were stoned to death or sawn in two, they were were killed with the sword because of their testimony of Christ. This is what Hebrews 11.37 says happened to them. They're going, man, I waited. I don't have my dream. You're twisting God's word, and this is blasphemy, Troy. So therefore, there's not really a lot of joy in their life because they're not looking to where they're going. They're just focused on where they're at. I mean, why is that? I mean, we got a path and we have a promise. I think the problem is simply doubt, right? It's on the journey from the promise that God gives us to the fulfillment of that promise that we begin. Maybe the problem is, is that God nowhere promises this and it's false doctrine and false teaching. That's the problem to doubt and we begin to wonder if it's ever going to actually happen if faith is the confidence of things that we hope for will actually happen it's the assurance of the things that we cannot see then it's not in your outline but they're going to put it up on the screen doubt is the fear that what we hope for might not happen let's read that out loud here we go you ready doubt is the fear might not happen. Isn't that, isn't that what doubt does make you afraid? Man, what if it doesn't happen? And what if, what if the, uh, the, the business doesn't start? What if the family doesn't get reconciled? What if God doesn't heal me? What if there is no God? What if, and all of these doubts, and what do those doubts do? They create fear. And then I, so doubt is the fear that what we hope for might not happen and it causes worry about the things that we can't see. See, when you begin to doubt, what is it that you start praying for? Send a sign. Right? God, I need to see it. Because I, 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 man, I, I'm thinking about turning back. If you read, I don't know if I put it in here. If, yeah, in, in uh, verses 15 and 16, here's what it says. I don't know if you guys can find it put it on the screen, but here's what it says in Hebrews 11, 15, 16. They could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place. Isn't that what doubt does? Is it mon- So you read verse 15 and you again avoided verse 13, which said, which actually says, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised. So it's fascinating, Troy. This is really simple. Okay, based upon the fact that you have gone cherry picking through the uh, through Hebrews 11, it's clear that you read the passage and you purposely cut out all of the passages that disagree with your theology. And you've only brought forward passages that out of context seem to support what you're saying. You did this on purpose. You're lying to these people on purpose. You know that what you did was is basically completely ignore what God's word really says, and you're purposely lying to these people. Just uh, go back. Go back to where you were. The people of God left Egypt where they were prisoners, and they ran into the Red Sea in front of them and the army of Egypt behind them. What did they look at Moses and say? I won't go back. At least, you know, we had food to eat. At least they weren't shooting with us with weapons. And 
over and over again in our lives. When we begin to doubt, we get afraid of what we can't see and we want to go back, no matter how bad it was, to what we could, what we could see. You see in chapter uh, 12, he gives us this whole example of Jesus. Look what it says in Hebrews 12. It says, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. What is that? It's the dream God's put in your heart. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, let's run with some perseverance. It's going Yeah, no, again, running with perseverance has nothing to do with achieving the dream that God's put in our heart. You are again twisting God's word. You're doing it on purpose. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, including the ones who lost their lives and wandered in caves and dens, right? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Yeah, I'm sorry, Troy, but this has nothing to do with achieving a dream. It's not going to be easy, so you've got to persevere. You've got to continue to move towards it. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer, the creator, and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he, what's the next word? Endured the cross. Now, when I read that, I'm amazed because it doesn't say that Jesus enjoyed, right, this cross. It says that he actually endured it. So if you think about it, in between every dream that God gives us and the fulfillment of that dream, thank you, sir, the dream is what? There's a cross. So in between every dream and its fulfillment is a cross. You're going to do this to Jesus's cross. Unbelievable. This is utter blasphemy. What was the dream? The dream was that God would reconcile you and me to himself. Adam and Eve screwed it up for all of us, didn't they? The Bible says that when one man fell, we all fell. For all have fallen short of God's glorious standard, which is what? Sin. It's the, it means to miss the bullseye. So we've all, none of us live a perfect life. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And the wages of missing the bullseye or the penalty is death. God says, I don't want that. I want to spend eternity with people. So I'm going to pay that price. And so that dream will be fulfilled in you and I being able to have a relationship with God. But the only way for it to get from the promise to the fulfillment is Jesus had to go through the cross. Okay, now I'm going to pause right there. You'd think that was a gospel nugget, but keep this in mind. He's just putting it out as an illustration. He's not actually preaching the gospel. See, God wanted to have, he had a dream about being reconciled to us. So Jesus had to go through the cross. You see, Jesus had a dream. And then the fulfillment of the dream between them was the, was the cross. It's just like the same for us too. He didn't actually preach the gospel. And so the scripture says that while he was on the cross, he endured it. 
That's incredible to me. In the sense that God it just doesn't, you know, he's just like, hey, here's the way it is. Listen, I'm going to give you a dream. But in order for you to actually experience it. Yeah, what's unbelievable is that you would actually think that that's what the cross is about. It's some, basically some pattern that we're supposed to follow. Oh, Jesus had a dream. He had to, you know, in order to have it fulfilled, he had to go through the cross. God's going to lay a dream on your heart, just like he did with Jesus. And you've got to ha- you have a cross that you have to bear and endure just like Jesus did. This is unbelievable. This is one of the most blasphemous mistreatments of the cross I've ever heard. Dream, you're going to have to, the gospel writers say, pick up your cross and follow him. In other words, there are going to have to be some things in your life you endure. They're not fun. They're not pleasant. They're not enjoyable. They're painful. They're difficult. And everything inside of you says quit. And we have all experienced in our life. Listen, if you've just ever decided you're going to get in shape and you've taken off jogging, you've experienced it, haven't you? Because you don't have to take very many steps at all before your body says what? You need to quit. You need to quit. If you- yeah, you see, you know, exercising is the cross that you had to bear. It's just like when Jesus was crucified. Don't quit. It starts even, it raises it up a little bit, doesn't it? You're going to die. <laughs> it's like your heart says, I'm going to stop. I'm telling you, if you don't, if you don't, I will. You know? And the only way you run a mile to, is what you have to endure. Nothing fun about it. You just have to endure. And that's exactly what the scripture says here. It says that Jesus endured. And I know that there are some of us here today, and that's exactly where you are. You're in a place where you're just, man, you're just like, man, Troy, I, this is hard. And you ought to see the stack of bills I got on my counter at home. And I don't know how in the world I'm going to pay them. So you don't understand my son or my daughter, they're making some decisions that are breaking my heart. And it's been months. It's been years. And no matter what I say, no matter how many times I pray, no matter what in the world, I, I mean, it just, it just hurts. I mean, what is suicide? It's when we get to the point where we're just like, man, I do not, I just can't, I can't go another day. And so I'm, I'm going to no longer endure. And Jesus is just up front. And I just want to be up front with you. Listen, God's given you a dream. And he has promised. No, he hasn't. This has nothing to do with the Christian message or Christian sanctification or anything. That that dream can be fulfilled. But the only way to get from the promise to the fulfillment of the dream, you got to go through the cross. This is utter blasphemy. You have to pick up your cross and follow him. But God doesn't just leave you there and say, it's going to be painful. You know, I had some coaches in school when I was playing basketball were like that. We're going to run today. Going to run, you know, a bunch of suicides. Then we're going to run up and down a hill. And if you fall, don't come crying to me. If you throw up, that's it, right? They just like, we're going to run and I love it. Ha <laughs> ha, you're going to hurt. And some people say God that way. That he almost enjoys our pain. When in reality, it breaks his heart that we hurt. But like any parent who allows pain in the life of their child, they only allow it because they love them enough so that they can get what? To the fulfillment of their dream. And that's, that's, what, that's what Hebrews 12 is all about. So he tells us that, man, I've got this... Uh, 
I want to walk with you. I want to do something about the doubt that you're feeling. And he does that with encouragement. Let me give you the blank fill in here so some of us don't go crazy. Perseverance is the measure of confidence you have in what you can't see. So just think about that for a moment. What does it mean to persevere? It's just the, it, perseverance is a way that you can determine the amount of confidence you have in what you can't see. It, it reveals our faith, doesn't it? Because complete nonsense. Faith is the confidence that we have in what we can't see. So God gives us some encouragement and the encouragement that he gives us is in our past. And not just our past, but he gives us a whole chapter of people who have done the impossible, who have endured the difficulty. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore. Now, anytime you're reading the Bible, okay, and you read therefore, you got to stop. And you got to say, okay, what comes before this? Because it's saying, therefore, because of what you have just read. So he's about to tell us something that we need to do. And yet, Troy, you meticulously made sure to not read the entire passage so that they have no clue what the therefore is there for. You skipped verse 13 that says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. You skipped all of the passages that talked about the people who were persecuted, who were tortured, that some the people who refused to accept, uh, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Those who were stoned and sawn in two. You left all of that out, and so here you're making your point in uh, Hebrews chapter twelve, verse one, where it says, "Therefore, having purposely and meticulously." omitting data, important data, so they aren't going to understand what the therefore is there for because you haven't told them the truth. Because of what we've just read. Now, what did we just read in chapter 11? All these people who did the impossible because of their faith. So he says, because of all these people, more people than I even have time to tell you, he says, were able to do what others said were impossible because of their faith. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of people, all those in chapter 11, whose lives tell us what faith means, they witness to us to run the race that is before us and never give up, to run it with endurance and perseverance. And I thought we'd just talk about a few of them real quick. The first one is Noah. Hebrews eleven seven. It was by, what's the next word? What did Noah do? He built a big old boat. When we were little, some of us called it an ark. Right? But what is an ark? It's a big boat. And he built this big boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about, get this, things that had never happened before. It never rained before. And so Noah's out there and he's building this boat in a place where there would be no way in which... So the story of the flood and Noah now is reduced to, hey, look, God laid a dream on his heart and he accomplished the impossible. Really? get to the water. And I put it like this in your outline. When the promise or the dream that you have, that God's put in your heart, has never been seen, what do you have to risk? You have to be willing to risk your reputation. I'm going to tell you, Noah's reputation took a beating. What are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. Big one. <laughs> you going to build a trailer too, you know? No, it's going to rain. What? It's going to rain. 
You ever feel like that when you get a dream? Because what do you need to do when you get a, a dream? Do you ever feel like that when you get a dream? Noah, you got to understand this. The whole world was going to be destroyed by a global flood. And only seven people survived in two of each animal that God sent to the ark. And this, you're likening this to my dream of getting skinny or somebody else's dream of starting a business? Are you nuts? You declare it. There's a dream I got. You declare it to your family, your friends, your business partners, your, your ministry team. Man, this is what God's laid in my heart. This is what God's called me to do. And that's a scary thing to do, right? If it's never been done before. Because when you declare that you're going to do something that's never been done before, how do most people respond? If they do encourage you, they kind of encourage you with that. That's a good boy, right? Most people are like, no, no, you're crazy. You didn't go to the right college. You don't have the right money. You didn't, you don't know the right people. You're too old. You're too young. That's never, that's never going to happen. And so the tendency is to have an invisible dream, right? I got a dream. I'm just not going to tell anybody. Why in the world wouldn't you tell anybody? Well, because I don't want to tell people and it not happen and me lose my reputation. What? No, no. That means you don't have what? That means you don't have faith. And without faith, it's impossible, Hebrews 11 says, to please God. In other words, you're going to turn around and you'll never see the fulfillment, not because God's unwilling, but because you're not persevering. So I just want you to know, when God gives you like this big dream, and whether it be about your family or your business or your, your walk with God, he gives you this big dream, there's going to be a time where you're like, I got to risk my reputation. I got to declare this. It's kind of like, you know, in January, you got people going like invisible diets. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm just not going to tell anybody because I don't want them griping at me when I eat the brownies. <laughs> well, what are you going to do? You're going to eat the brownies, aren't you? And you're never going to lose the weight. It's like if you've been at Potential Church very long, you've heard us talk about, we just feel in this season that God has called us to, to launch 50 campuses to reach 100,000 people. 50 campuses spewing this poisonous heresy? What's your goal? To send the whole planet to hell? We have a budget of $150 million to change the world. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of campuses. And every time I get ready to say that, there's something in me that says, Troy, there's probably another way to say it. Why? Because it's, it's, it's my reputation. What if it doesn't happen? All right, that's what my skin says. People are going to believe you in anything else? What if you're not making quick enough progress? What if, what if that campus doesn't work? What if this doesn't happen? What if uh, all of those things are running through, are running through my mind? And Noah... Right? That's what Hebrews 11 says, stands up from this great Colosseum. And can I tell you, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, he had in his mind the big Roman Colosseum. When we went to Egypt to encourage the persecuted church, we stopped in Rome on our way there. And we were there for, I think, uh, I don't know, a day and a half, two days. And we went to this, the Colosseum. And he's writing about that big Colosseum where they would put the Christians in the Colosseum to fight <clears throat> other men and to fight lions. And what would happen is that people in the stands would stand to their feet and they would yell to their brothers, fight the fight, run the race, don't give up, don't quit. And that's exactly here, the picture that he's giving us. And so when I'm feeling that, man, when I'm thinking, man, are we ever, I mean, 50 campuses, how, I mean, $150 million, I mean, that's God, I mean. So your dream 
to have 50 multi-site campuses of potential church. Yeah, it'll change the world all right for the worse. Um, That's just like Christian martyrs who are facing the lions. Oh, man. Unbelievable. And you hear all Noah say, no, no, Troy, don't worry, worry about your reputation. God's faithful and what God said he would do, he will do. He will bring it about. And Noah would stand to his feet and say the same to you. <clears throat> so you got Noah, you got Sarah. Hebrews eleven eleven says, it was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and too old. She believed that God would keep his what? His promises. Now, you remember, God entered into a covenant with Abraham and said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation who was the husband of Sarah. He says, you're going to have descendants are going to number so many, they're going to be greater than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. You know how many kids Abraham had at the time? And Sarah? Zero. Not only did they have zero kids, Sarah was old and barren. Abraham, this is what it says about Abraham. I had to write it down. Here's what the scripture says. He was as good as dead. He was so old. I put it like this in your outline. When the promise or dream is impossible. I mean, it's impossible. You're too old, Sarah. And not only are you too old, you are medically incapable of having children. You have to risk failure. Failure turns so many of us around back to where we've come from. Nobody likes to fail. And once you've declared your dream, your failure is what? It's in public. I can't help when I think about this story to think you got Sarah that has, you know, she's too old. She's, she's got, it's impossible medically. And then there's Abraham and as good as dead. Now I learned in middle school that there is a process in which a man and a woman have to go through in order to conceive a child. This is in days before Viagra. Okay. So can you just see Abraham, you know, I mean, he's, he's as good as gone. And Sarah kind of looks at him with that twinkle in her eye and says, you're ready to give her a try, big boy, you know? <laughs> and you got this whole, this whole, just uh, the believing, right? But there are some of us that are hoping for the child without having enough faith to go through the process, right? You just allegorize the promised child who is a direct descendant of Jesus. And you've just allegorized that. Now, the dream for you starting a restaurant is, is the baby in your life. Again, blasphemy. The word blasphemy doesn't even come close to what this is. As far as I see in the scripture, there's been only one virgin birth. And you and I are not going to be the second. It's like Mr. Dizzy said earlier, you have to get in the car. The same is true for Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and 19. It says it was by faith Abraham offered Isaac. You know who Isaac was? He's the son. So you read 17. Now we're at 17 and 19. Notice he keeps meticulously avoiding Hebrews 11, verse 13, which would totally give him up. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. That little verse destroys 
his entire sermon. And yet he keeps hopscotching around it. Just jump here, jump there. He never reads it, does he? Strange, isn't it? He eventually had. Right? Sarah finally goes to the doctor and says, you're not going to believe this? I'm pregnant. Abraham gets out his phone. He starts Twittering, you know. At Sarah is pregnant. And it's this incredible thing. They have this boy. There's parties. There's excitement. And it says, God was testing him. And he asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now, understand, God wasn't testing Abraham because God didn't know if Abraham had enough faith. God knows whether you and I have faith. He was allowing Abraham to discover how much faith he had. Because sometimes we think we have a whole lot of faith when in reality we don't. See, we don't understand why we're not seeing the fulfillment of the promise. And so God allows things into our lives so that we can see it's actually that our faith is weak. In other words, we're not enduring the cross that will lead to the fulfillment. And, and that's what's going on here. He says, hey, I want you to sacrifice this son. And, 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 it, and it's just incredible because it says... Abraham, who had received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son whom your descendants will be counted. In other words, Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise I gave you. Why was Abraham willing to do that? Because Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. I put this in your outline. When the promise or dream is bigger than you, You have to be willing to risk your success. Abraham already had his success. It was Isaac. And what did God ask for? He asked for a success. He said, Abraham, if I'm going to do incredibly big things through you, then I've got to help you get to a place where you completely trust me. Where you trust me enough that if I need to bring Isaac back to life, I'm able to do do that. And you know what? There are times in our lives that the dream God's given us is so large that he wants us to put the success that we've already experienced on the altar so that we can fulfill. Again, the word blasphemy does not even come close to covering what it is that we're hearing here. This is rank heresy. We experience even greater blessings, and that's really difficult to do. Because you've endured... Man, you've been through the pain. You've been through the struggle. Abraham and Sarah had been laughed at. And if you read their story, they had tried other things to try to make God's promise. I mean, it was a really difficult and challenging journey for them. And then they get there, man, they have Isaac. And God says, but guess what? I got another dream for you. I want to take you even further, Abraham. But in order for you to get from where you are to the dream that I've now placed into your heart, you've got to put what I've already given you on the line gotta trust me that much this is nonsense the sacrifice of isaac has nothing to do with some dream that god's laid on your heart and then he wants you to have put it on an altar the sacrifice of isaac is one of the strongest types and shadows that points us to the res- to the crucifixion of jesus christ god is the one there prefiguring the death of jesus in the sacrifice of isaac and god himself provides the sacrifice thousands of years later on the exact same mountain that Isaac was supposedly going to be sacrificed on. That's where Jesus bled and died. Oh man. That's hard to do. It's easy to sacrifice when you don't have anything, isn't it? 
I remember when Steph and I first got married, we didn't have anything. <laughs> I mean, we had a couple pair of socks. I had a couple pair of holy underwear, you know, a few shirts and a bedspread and a car. You know? So God says, hey, go over there. Let's go. What's the worst that can happen? I lose a pair of underwear. I can get by on one, you know. It's easy. But then when you, God begins to bless your life, now all of a sudden you've got family and, and you've got, hey, three, four pair of underwear and you've got bedspreads and you've got dogs and you've got a house. You've got all this stuff. And God says, hey, here's what I want to do with your life. But in order for you to experience that dream, I want you to take what I've already blessed you with. And I want you to trust me with it. Oh, God, I don't want to go back. I, I, I mean, I'm enjoying this. Do you know that's why so many people struggle to be obedient in the area of giving? I mean, think about it. God has asked us in the New and Old Testament to return to tithe, is the word the Bible uses. Ten Christians are not under the tithe. Look in the archives of Fighting for the Faith for further details. Sent of the 100% that he's given us. So I think you would have to agree, no matter how you define success, that receiving resources is some type of success. Would you not agree? I mean, would any of us take more resources and say, that's okay with me? So, so that's some kind of success. God has given you, the scripture teaches, 100% of what you have. Not by your strength, not by your might, not by your... You know, God used and gave me and you everything we have. And so... God gives us. And then he says, I want you to know. See, God knows my level of commitment. God knows the priority he is in my life. It's sometimes I get it screwed up. And so God says, every week, I'm going to give you an opportunity, Troy, to discover the priority I am in your life. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask you to return to me through the storehouse, the Old Testament says, through the church. I'm going to ask you to return to me 10% of the success I've given you this week. And so every week I get an opportunity to discover the priority is. It's easy for me to say he's number one. Oh, God, give me one of those big fingers. It's another thing when I have to take the success that he's given me and place it there. That's why in the world, Christ followers, I'm not talking about those who don't run after God, Christ followers, only three to 5% are obedient in this area. Yeah, I wonder how, what percentage of uh, seeker-driven pastors are obedient to the preach the word and rightly handle God's word commandments? Probably less than 3%. What do you think? We continue. Three to five. That, thinks, that means if you count 100 people, let's just take this little section right here. <laughs> there are three of you. Uh, and that's incredible, isn't it? I think that's why we see so much financial need in our world. is because God's pouring out a blessing where nobody's standing. Just a few people. It's so hard to do. Same thing is true in relationships, right? I mean, God tells us, he says, hey, here's how you do relationships and you'll have a great relationship. Sex is my idea. Marriage is my idea. Love, commitment, that are all my ideas. But you got to trust me and you got to be sexually active only inside the commitment of marriage. Right? Why is that so hard? It's like, do we trust him? Is there a way for me to get to the fulfillment, right, of sexual intimacy and all those things without going God's way? It's this whole idea of being willing, trusting God enough to take him at his word. 
And I just want to submit to you that the reason we see so much pain and hurt in our world is because we're not positioned. Remember I said faith is not mystical, it's positional. We're not positioned where the blessing's coming. And I think Abraham stands from that stand. And on top of it, we're getting all law and no real gospel. And he'd say, oh man, I'm so glad I took Isaac up into the top of the hill. God took care of the whole thing. And I am the father of a great nation. God did what he said he would do. Trust him with your relationship. You'll have a better relationship than you ever thought possible. Trust him with your finances. You'll have greater finances than you ever thought possible. I know for me and Steph, when we first moved here, it was difficult. Really, um, you're making it so God's promising all these people this great finances and sexual relations and stuff like that. Um, what about the verse, the people in verse Hebrews 11, verse 36? Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, and killed with a sword. Hebrews 11, 36 and 37. Hmm? What about them? Where's their big promise for you know, great financial blessing and stuff? No, because we had, in Arkansas, we had family. You know what family is great for? Taking care of the kids. And when we moved here, we didn't have any family. So we had to, you know, pay somebody to take care of the kids that we didn't know. Bailey was just a few months old. And those of you who are mothers know that that's, that's difficult. Stephanie in Arkansas, uh, she was a teacher, but she had gotten to a place where she was able to, to stay home. That's what she wanted to do. Everybody's different, but that's what she wanted to do. We had just bought our first house. Of course, when we moved here, it cost a lot more to live here. So Stephanie had to go back to work. And like I said, we paid somebody to watch the kids. And we moved from our house that we had just bought into a mobile home. Nothing wrong with the mobile home, but it wasn't our house. And so when we got here, it was very easy for us to convince ourselves that we didn't have enough to be generous. Now, we were always going to tithe simply because we made that commitment when we were... When we first got married, we said, you know what? We believe this. We're going to trust him. It's not, it's not always been easy. It wasn't easy then because we, we got here and we didn't have anything. And not only did we not have anything, we didn't have what we once had. And that's even, that's challenging. Emotionally, not physically, but emotionally. So now he's uh, telling the story because you know, he's, he's buying what he's selling. So he has to point to his life as, hey, listen, this worked for me. It's going to work for you too. God put a dream on our heart. Now we went through our cross stage and you know, now we're in fulfillment. Then we had to go back and ha- lay all of it back on the altar and sacrifice it again. To, oh, man. So we, we tithed. It was difficult to return to God 10% of the 100% he gave us. But I'll tell you, anything beyond that? Because God, that's the beginning point. God wants us to be generous because generosity is where great joy is found. We convinced ourselves we didn't have it. So we couldn't do that. And there was an opportunity for this. We couldn't do that. And can I tell you something that was, if not the most, one of the most, it was the most, the most, those few years where we weren't being as generous as we previously had. I just tell you, they were the most financial challenging times that we've experienced in our marriage. Here's when it changed. We were getting ready to do a Christmas series. And God kind of nudged Steph and I's heart to do a, a series where we kind of paid it forward, you know. And, it was, and he nudged our hearts to say, I want you to begin it by on the kickoff weekend giving everybody a dollar. At the time, I think we had ten or 11,000 people. So it was ten or $11,000. We didn't have 
$500 in the bank, let alone $10,000 in the bank. So there was only one place for us to get that money, and it was to go to our retirement account, which, you know, wasn't very big anyways. And so we went and we got that, and we gave it away. And can I tell you that that, when we did that, God just began to open doors in different places and in different ways for us to be blessed um, uh, financially. And it's that step of generosity and continuing to be generous that God has done so much more. And can I just, I'll just be honest with you, as a pastor, it's the most frustrating part for me because I see the sincerity of the financial stress some of you are under. Steph and I have been where we walk home and we look at the the bar and it's filled with bills and we don't know how we're going to pay them and we're being obedient. And everything inside of us says, hey, why don't you turn around? Are you sure? What if God doesn't bless financial generosity? What What if there is no God? I mean, there's nothing that will cause you to question God quicker than to just the constant wait of financial stress. It breaks up marriages all the time. But I just, <laughs> what God says he will do, he will do. And he's done it in our lives. And there are chapters of people. There are hundreds, thousands of people in this church alone that are standing over here saying, hey, listen, if you'll trust him, he'll do what he said he would do. And what has God promised to do for you? Has he promised to give you a dream to lose weight, to start a restaurant, to begin a business or get a a raise at work? No. What he's promised you is the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ, which he himself bore your sins on the cross for you in your place, suffering the wrath of God in your place so that you can be reconciled to God, so that you can have eternal life. Everything here that you see, that you can touch and smell and taste and feel, this is all going away. Nothing here remains. This is all transitory, including you. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And if you want to spend eternity with God, having been forgiven and adopted into his family, then repent of your sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You want to risk it? The lake of fire and eternity in hell? Continue on your way. Unbelieving, impenitent. That's what awaits you. So we do have promises from God. And those promises are the forgiveness of our sins and life, eternal life with him, new heavens, new earth. Not that you're going to lose weight or achieve some dream here in life. You might be sawn in two. You might suffer for your faith. That might happen to you. But nothing here lasts, including you. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of your relationships. He'll take care of your finances. But you got to follow. You got to trust him enough. You got to have enough faith, enough confidence that God's going to do what he said he would do. That you got to. Just going to continue to trust him and not turn back. Because that's the last thing that I wanted to share with you. It's this picture. 
The picture of the fulfillment is found in Hebrews 12. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? He scorning its shame and he sat down at the right hand of God. How did he endure the cross? Is he endured the cross because the joy was in front of, in front of him. He wasn't focused on where he was. He was focused on where he was going. Again, he's not actually preaching the cross. He's just preaching Christ as some model to follow. God would say the same thing to you and I today. The picture is, listen, I know you're enduring right now, but if you will continue to be faithful, if you will continue to walk after him and to focus on where you're going, not where you're at, he will, he will be faithful. He will be faithful. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique. God knows it's difficult. And so in Galatians 6, 9, just hear the heart of God. So let's not get tired because that's what happens, doesn't it? You get tired of being broke. You get tired of... Galatians 6, 9 has nothing to do with you fulfilling your dreams. And the low person on the totem pole. You get tired of being told by the bank that you can't get the loan for your business. You get tired of being made fun of by your friends because you won't sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You just get tired. And so the Bible says, don't get tired of doing what is right, doing what is good. Don't get tired of running after God because it's just the right time. Be honest with you, that's the part of the scripture I don't like. I just wish it said, you know what? I'm going to give you a dream and then I'm going to fulfill the dream. But he says it's just the right time. Not our time, but his time. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we what? Don't give up. Yeah, and again, this passage has nothing to do with achieving a dream. This is demonic. The harvest is there. The fulfillment is there. It's here. But you can't give up. You got to keep walking towards the dream that God has put in your heart. No matter what anybody says, no matter how much pain, no matter what kind of you're, you're enduring today. Listen, don't focus here. Focus on the beauty that is just, just beyond where you're at. Several years ago, when Steph and I had, we had, you know, planted our church in Arkansas. And me and our, our associate pastor went to a conference in Jacksonville, Florida, First Baptist Church. It's the largest auditorium at the time, around 10,000 people. Our auditorium held like 250 people. Went to the conference. We decided it was Valentine's, so we decided to come home early to see our Valentine's. We got to the airport, and back in that day, you could fly standby. You know what I mean? You get to the airport early, you could put your name on the list, and you could actually fly before your flight. Today, they're all full, but back then, you could do that. So we got there, and we put our name on the list, and there was another pastor that got there. He was flying standby as well. He was my, like, hero in the faith. Just an incredible man of God. He pastored a church about an hour and a half from the church we had planted. So it's where we went to see the Christmas plays and where we went to see the Easter plays. I mean, his auditorium held, I don't know, 65, 7,500 people. His church had 40,000 members. His name was Dr. Adrian Rogers. And he had a voice that sounded like God. Good morning, you know. I sound like Peter Brady, but he sounded like God. and It's just awesome, you know. And I looked and I said, man, he's flying standby. I'm flying standby. I told my associate pastor, I said, you know what? God must have big things for me because I am going to sit next to Dr. Adrian Rogers for the next three hours. And he's going to tell me how to be a pastor. 
See, I, I didn't plan on being a pastor. I played basketball in high school and college, overseas, and I, 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 that's, I planned on coaching. And so, I, I, man, like, sometimes you just don't know, right? You just doubt. But, man, I'm going to sit by him for three hours. My associate pastor, I don't think you'll end up. Yeah, I'm going to. He got on the plane before me. He's a taller guy. And so I watched him as he got on the plane. And I'm looking at my ticket and kind of looking where he's sitting. And I'm looking at my ticket. And I'm looking where he's sitting. And I'm looking at my ticket. And I'm looking where he's sitting. And my associate was correct. I didn't get to sit next to Dr. Adrian Rogers. In reality, I sat on the very last seat of the plane next to the bathrooms. Middle seat. I'm a pretty big guy. So it was just miserable. And I'm telling you, I was ticked. I'm sitting there like this. And every once in a while, because... Dr. Rogers was sitting in front of me. I could see him lean over and talk to the idiot that was in my seat up there, you know. <clears throat> and God like nudges and, you know, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, you've been at that conference all week. You, why don't you share Jesus with one of those people sitting next to you? Because like, I don't want to. I'm mad at you. <laughs> but you know how God is. He doesn't leave you alone. And they're both reading books. And I'm like, oh, so I came up with this plan. I thought I would just kick really hard. And we're all scrunched in there. Whichever one of them looked up, I'd tell about Jesus, okay? So I kicked. The lady to my right looked up. I'm like, oh, did I kick you? I'm, I'm sorry. You know, that's a great way to start sharing your faith. Just lie. But I, uh, it, it, come to find out, she, you know, she's a long way from God. She had a lot of questions. And for two hours, it went by so fast. Uh, just talked about who Jesus was and the difference that Jesus could make in your life. And as that plane was, was landing right there in Memphis, Tennessee, she just knelt down next to her chair and she asked Jesus into her heart. Really, she didn't. But wouldn't that be a great story? I mean, right? I mean, I could write a book if that would have really happened. It, d- it didn't happen. I do pray that today the seeds that I sowed have come to fruition. But I will tell you what God did. And the only reason I tell you the story is because... There are lots of times in my life when I doubt. There are lots of times in my life when enduring is no fun at all. And it's like, God, is it ever going to happen? I mean, God, is it ever going to take place? God, I, I'm doing all that I know to do. Is, is, this, is this the right thing? Am I in the, the right place? Am I doing the right thing? And all of those questions come to my mind. And every time that happens, I am reminded, as I was getting off that plane, clearer than maybe any time God had ever really just nudged my heart. And he said to me, Troy, I could have asked Dr. Adrian Rogers to sit next to her and tell her about Jesus. But Troy, I chose you. God chose me on that day. Who's he preaching about? Himself, not Jesus, himself. Above Dr. Rogers to sit next to that young lady to tell her about Jesus. He chose me. And you know what? God chose you too. It's not by accident that you're where you're at. It's not by accident that you can do what you can do. It's not by accident that you have the dream that you have. God chose you. And not only did he choose you, he knit you together in your mother's. Rather than telling the truth that they're sinners in need of a savior and that Christ bled and died for them. Christ died for you. He's telling them complete nonsense. Promises that are not found in scripture and avoiding and meticulously ripping apart the Bible so as to avoid the real promises.
womb with the gifts and the talents that you need, not just to have the dream, but to fulfill the dream. And he tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Noah and Moses and Abraham, they all stand to their feet. Maybe your grandparents who have gone before you or a pastor you had when you were young, they stand to their feet and they look at you and I as we're playing this game of life with great critics and attacks that come at us and they say, hey, don't you quit. Don't you give up on that dream? Yeah, no, Moses and Noah and Abraham do not say don't give up on that dream because Hebrews 11.13 says of them, they all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's what Hebrews 11.13 says. We continue. Don't you walk away from it. God is faithful. And what he said he would do, he will do. Just don't quit. Just don't give up. Just don't surrender. Just don't stop. He's going to pour it out. You just got to keep following. And then you can look at the world. And say, you know what? He is. He's faithful. Would you bow your head? No, you don't get to pray for us. <clears throat> I don't even think we believe in the same God, Troy. Wow. That was blasphemous. I mean, that wasn't just a little bit of Bible twisting. That was a meticulous exacto knife cutting out of the verses and the passages and the words that disagreed with the theology that he was spinning here. It was dis- duplicitous, deceitful, and demonic. And these people haven't learned anything about Jesus. They don't know the truth about the Christian faith. They're completely clueless of their condition before God as sinners under the wrath of God in need of the forgiveness of their sins. This, I mean, well, it's as if Satan has taken up residence there at uh, potential church. I think he, he, the devil, runs that church, not Christ. You ain't going to hear about Jesus, not correctly there. I mean, that was sulfurously satanic. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.